0: Hi, I'm Tony. I'm Patrick. Welcome again to Cave to the Cross Apologetics where we are working our way through the book Truth in a Culture of Doubt, mm-hmm. right? So this is a this is a great book. We are in chapter 2 and there are various claims in chapter 2. Actually, there are 5 claims in this chapter, right? And we've worked our way to the third uh, claim. The first claim, the the New Testament authors have contradictory points of view on major issues, right? Well, no, they just have different perspectives, Mm -hmm. right? Secondly, attempts to reconcile various events in the New Testament are mistaken because such harmonizations create another uh, account that is different from the one being read. Well, that's ridiculous, right? All it does is uh, fills in the gaps and tells us the bigger picture. It doesn't create a different account, right? Right. And now we're on the third claim in chapter 2. This claim says that the gospel's uh chronological differences are historical contradictions right. right so how they place the various events and accounts chronologically he's suggesting are they're contradicting in terms of, of the history
1: mm-hmm. right and we we covered a lot of these and um I'll, uh, there'll be cards above and cards below uh, in the description of uh, of, uh, our, our, uh going over um uh, Jason Lyles, uh, Keeping Faith in the Age of Reason, where we kind of dig into, well, okay, this does seem like a contradiction. Well, not quite a contradiction because A, not A, that whole uh, uh, conversation, but also uh, timekeeping and certain ones. So we went over um, many of those. So uh, those links will be uh, included as well. Uh, here, uh, Erman's critique stands only if someone were to try to make the Gospels into something they were never intended to be. Mm. Ancient literature from this time period often do, did not narrate events in exact chronological order. Uh, we, we see that a lot uh, in Matthew, especially, uh, again, who is he writing to a Jewish audience? Um, sometimes when uh, you're making lists, you put the per- person of prominence first, where we would say, oh, well, you know, I was third born, so I'm third in the list. That yeah. would make the most sense. Unless if I was super famous, right? Then I would want to be number one. That's right. So it depends on, on what's there. Uh, instead, historical events were arranged for them- thematic and topical reasons. Now, that's not saying that um, that uh, you know we're, we're not um, uh, going to what uh, um, Lydia McGrew talked about, where um, you have this, well, I moved it around for, for various uh, nefarious purposes, or, or I wanted to make a point here. So Jesus didn't really do this at the beginning. He did this at the end. Um, But this is um, talking about needing to read um, uh, what's actually being done in the text. Mm. So this is clearly seen in the gospel as each author felt the freedom to arrange parables, sayings, and other events in view uh, of their particular purpose.
0: Right. So, for example, Erdman uh, cries foul when Luke's gospel places the tearing of the veil in the temple before Jesus' death. Well, Mark puts it after the crucifixion. In
1: fact, I think we did this one uh, specifically in, in uh, our other book.
0: Right. And so, But uh, our authors tell us that there seems to be a, a simple reason for this rearrangement. Right? Luke likely mentions the tearing of the veil prior to the crucifixion in order to put it besides the other cosmic signs that were happening mm-hmm. that he was describing. Right. right. In other words, Luke is providing a list of cosmic signs without claiming any particular order for these events. Mm-hmm. So that's yeah. that's one way to explain it, right? That. So, so
1: in the natural telling of the crucifixion moments, he's saying here's certain things that happen, and he's grouped them together. He's yeah. not saying here's exactly when they took place in this part of the story. He's saying, that, you know, yeah, all he, of he,
0: these things happened
1: yeah. during the crucifixion. Here's time. a theme yeah. of you know, here's a list of all the things that happened, um, and it's it's uh, again we do this as well. And so to, to, to read this as, well, he's, he's uh, going along and then uh, intersects this where uh, another author doesn't, well, is that author writing within the scope of the historical claim, or are they saying, hey, here's a, a list for theological purposes? Yeah, good. Yeah. yeah. Uh, this type of flexibility in chronology is uh, frequent not only in the Gospels but other ancient literature once fundamentalist presuppositions are shed and the Gospels are allowed to uh, be what they are. Uh, and what they were intended to be. Erman's claims of chronological contradictions appear more skeptical than scholarly. Yeah, so, right. yeah.
0: Good. So that's... Um, that claim is, number three. That was claim number three, right? How uh, uh, <clears throat> about claim number four? Claim number four says that the Gospels are so different in detail that they must be deemed in error at numerous points and cannot be viewed as a divinely inspired, right? right? So right. they're so different. The details are so different <laughs> mm-hmm. that obviously somebody got something wrong.
1: Yeah. Right? And, and uh, you know, th- this has been a historic claim within Christianity, and it seems most recently you have certain scholars who um, I don't question their faith. Uh, they they are um, avid believers, strong believers, know the Bible back and forth better than I do, but who for the, the sake of either having a seat at the table or because it's just really hard kind of divorce themselves from this narrative. And that's not always been uh, a, uh, a, a historical Christianity narrative. Uh, now you, you can uh, not, again, you can not talk about it and, and say, this isn't the scope of my, my, Talking and so the argument from silence should be used there for <laughs> scholars, but there are some scholars who say, uh, you know, I just I just don't go based on that perspective, and so uh, we would we would have issues with that as well. Right. Uh, but uh, here, our authors uh, talk about that uh, no serious scholar denies that the gospels at times differ in details, mm-hmm. but once again, differences <clears throat> do not mean contradictions. This right. isn't an A or not A uh jason Lyle went through 420 of them and didn't find one so no. for no. one uh Erman inadequately appreciates the nature of Jesus' teaching ministry and that's very true, especially if you watch his debates. This is, this is part of his um, presentation that he gives here. Uh, Jesus would travel from town to town teaching several of the same lessons and parables in slightly different ways. If he taught a lesson once, he had no doubt would have taught the same lesson on several other occasions. In fact, I think the 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 longest one is the, the Sermon on the Mount series. And that's what, like 20 minutes to, to just read through it? Yeah, or less. And to, to say that, well, that's the only time he said that it seems weird for a teacher who's going around from town to town and, and and preach for three, almost three years. Right. Right. (laughs) Um, And, and so uh, we can kind of compare this to um, uh, the Gettysburg address, right? Well, we know what the Gettysburg address was. Well, yeah, except it was written on pretty much the the back of an envelope. Right. (laughs) And it was uh, sent out in different ways to different people who heard it at different times from different people. So Which one's the Gettysburg Address, (laughs) right? (laughs) The original, back back to the sources. (laughs) So here, uh, you know, to to say that Jesus uh, didn't reteach things or uh, taught things um, uh, 100% the same way all the time, I mean, we don't do that. Right, you know. Right. So this uh, not only helped uh, uh, carve the sayings and lessons in the minds of the disciples, because they probably heard it over and over again. Right, yeah. It also meant that there were some variations in how Jesus told particular stories or truths, uh, taught certain truths. And again, we should let the, the authors um, uh, be free within the scope of being truthful.
0: Yeah, good. So Jesus also likely taught different Uh, moral lessons using similar language and similar words, right? For example, Urban implies that Matthew 12.30 and Mark 9.40 are contradictory because in Matthew, Jesus says, anyone who is not with me is against me, while in Mark... Jesus says, "Whoever is not against me, us is for us." Right. <laughs> so Erdman suggests that one of the uh, evangelists simply just got confused. Yeah. <laughs> However, Luke apparently uh, believed that Jesus made both of these remarks at different times, and uh, did not view them as contradictory, since he included both of them in in the Gospel of Luke, mm-hmm. right? Luke nine fifty and Luke eleven twenty three.
1: Right. And and does this create a a giant thing that uh, that churches are splitting over that that (laughs) uh, people are are raking their nails down their face and tearing their clothes? Because all of a sudden the entire Bible and and their entire faith was built upon this difference. And now it's done. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. You know, probably not. This seems to be making a a little bit more than than what it's worth. Uh, What is more is the context of Matthew 1230 and Mark 940 are different. In Matthew, Jesus is aiming his comments at those who attribute Jesus' ministry to evil forces. In Mark, Jesus is acknowledging the legitimacy of someone who is casting out demons in Jesus' name. Two vastly different audiences mm-hmm. yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, in light of the respective context, the most natural explanation is that Jesus uttered the two statements at different times. While the message conveyed by these two saints are not identical... Either is it contradictory? Yeah, they're not contradictory. Yeah, so yeah. you know, using a common phrase uh, um, uh, in different applications is is uh, essentially what you would find in in normal yeah. uh, talking. Uh, Ehrman has once again set the gospels up for failure by assuming with very narrow and rigid expectations this this kind of fundamental view that we looked at in uh, previous chapters, what the gospels should look like, and then criticizing them for not meeting his unreasonable and uh, anarchistic anachronistic. anachronistic there we go i knew there that word go. standards <laughs> yeah so he
0: sets up these high, these unreasonable standards right. right and then when the bible doesn't meet them right. he says see see it's wrong right. it's contradictory well no why yeah. look at your standards right. again. right yeah good All right, claim five, then, is the last claim in this particular chapter, right? So we've worked our way now through the first four claims, and now we come to claim five. Mm -hmm. Now, again, this chapter is talking about, is the Bible full of irresolvable contradictions, right? This is what chapter two is all about. So the fifth claim here says that the diversity of views within the New Testament indicates that Jesus was not originally considered, here it is, ready, to be God in any sense at all he eventually became divine for his followers in some sense before he came to be thought of as equal with God Almighty in an absolute sense. Mm-hmm. So, so the idea here is there is a progression and we'll see it here in this chapter as we go, right? Yeah. Jesus wasn't originally sought thought to be God, and then he eventually became God,
1: something like that, right? Again, if you've watched any of Bart Ehrman's presentations or debates, he always has that one joke that he repeats all the time is that uh, John's the only one where it talks about him being divine because Jesus says, I am divine, and you are the branches. Ah, (laughs) I've heard it so many times. (laughs) It's a good joke once, but it's it's hard just to hear it over and over again. Uh, So uh, Bart Ehrman has experienced somewhat of an evolution himself on the subject of uh, Christology. In uh, Jesus Interrupted, in, which uh, was published in uh, 2009, he claims John is our only gospel that actually speaks of Jesus as divine and argues that uh, this belief was particular to the late first century community from which John's gospel originated. Uh, However, in Ehrman's most recent book, How Jesus Became God, he now recognizes that belief in Jesus' divinity was remarkably early. The catch is that uh, he believes this early view meant something far less significant than what most Christians now mean by referring to Jesus' divinity. So there's the the trade-off.
0: Yeah, good. So Ehrman argues for a trajectory in early Christian thought that evolved from Jesus being not God in any sense at all Right to him being divine in some sense, to him being equal with God Almighty in an absolute sense. Yeah. Right. So you have this uh, kind of what he calls a pyramid. Right. While Erdman's provocative proposal might play well to those who are hungry for a conspiracy theory, mm-hmm. <laughs> a closer look reveals problems with his reading of the evidence. We'll start with two preliminary issues concerning how Erdman makes his argument in how Jesus became God, right? Right. So we have this progression here, this evolution in terms of how Jesus uh, became God in the eyes of those who believed in him, right? Right.
1: Uh, So our authors say that first, Ehrman makes the case by painting a rather monolithic portrait of scholarship on this issue. So So this is what everybody believes, right?
0: All the scholars believe this, right? They're on my side.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so this all too common rhetoric. He implies that there are sober-minded, realistic historians. That is the majority of critical scholars who for more than a century have maintained that Jesus was an apocalyptic prophet and concur that Jesus didn't even claim to be divine. Yeah, this and, is just what they all said. And right? and so, you know, I just had this discussion with, with someone uh, um, on on our YouTube comments. And uh, obviously uh, once answered you, you fall down a rabbit hole into more and more things that you pick apart and say, oh, well, you know, in 325, uh, you know, it's, it's 16, all, all but 16 bishops uh, said that, uh, you know, Jesus wasn't divine. Yeah. Well, no. That's, that's the whole Da Vinci Code thing. That's not accurate. Right. Uh, and didn't they, happen. And, and, and again, they weren't coming to discuss whether or not this is the case. It was a clarification on language in response to heresies out there from the Gnostics. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it wasn't just, oh, well, all of a sudden, Jesus is divine. Here we go. Let's let's send that out. <laughs> right. So uh, you know, all the scholars believe,
0: you know, we've already we've seen this kind of deal right before. Right, right. So the problem is that Urban once again has not really given his readers the whole story. The rest of the story. That's right. In fact, on the same day that his book, How Jesus Became God, was released, a five scholar team. Published a full-fledged response to Erdman, yeah. right? So Erdman should not claim to speak for the majority of serious uh, scholars when his responses include five first-rate scholars who teach on three continents and in four countries, Australia, Canada, England, the United States, and institutions such as Cambridge University, right? So clearly not all scholars right.
1: believe, right? Right. <laughs> So uh, his is uh, how God became uh, Jesus. No, Jesus became God. Is oh, how him? how God
0: became Jesus. Right,
1: right. That's okay. his. Oh, that's that's the scholars. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's good, good play on words.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so his was how Jesus became
1: God. And How God became and, Jesus. And they
0: res- yeah. their response was how right. God became yeah. Jesus. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Nice. Yeah.
1: And so <laughs> it, it does it, it does a, a, a good job, and uh, we uh, provide the links uh, below if uh, you want to purchase that. Uh, Second, Ehrman's approach to the process of historical inquiry predetermines that he will reach skeptical conclusions about the person of Jesus. So again, what do we always talk about? Uh, Presuppositions. Presuppositions help inform what you allow in, what you keep out. And so uh, that's what uh, he's doing here. Uh, In the revealing section of, of how Jesus became God, Ehrman explains his approach to history. He writes this, it is not appropriate for a historian to presuppose a perspective or worldview that is not generally held. So the question is generally held by whom, right? Yeah, that, that's that's the that's the big thing. If, if if you're gonna kind of count heads, count noses, I think you say, uh, then uh, you know, do you count all believers? Oh well, no, they're not scholarly. No. Okay, well, what about those who have come before? Well, no, those don't count because this, this is a modern scholarship. No. Okay, well, what about those who are doing modern scholarship? who are believers. Well, no, they don't count because they're biased. Okay. Well, you keep drawing your, your circle smaller and then you say, well, you know, So these
0: are the scholars, right? These are
1: all the scholars. Not saying that he's a lone wolf out out there in (laughs) in the the desert, but it's, it's, it's saying um, it's not taking into a a full menagerie of, of different perspectives that you should want to respond against. Uh, Later, he writes uh, historically and established as established by historians is based on shared presuppositions. So again, presuppositions don't matter, but then they do matter. And so we would agree, yes, they do matter. And so you should at least be clear that, hey, uh, with my presuppositions in place, I don't take um, uh, Bible believing scholars as uh, being the best because I want someone who comes at this from a skeptical standpoint. So only what the skeptics say is Kind of, right. it, it, when they the say this actually happened, yeah, the, the, yeah. then you, you, you can he, take it to the bank. That's make. right,
0: because he was a skeptic. right, right? right. So for Erdman, historical uh, inquiry cannot allow for any possibility yeah. and certainly not uh, point to any conclusion that God is involved in the world in specific ways. right? right? Uh, hence, historic Christian conclusions are off the table before anyone ever sits down at the table. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. 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 So even though Erdman's justification for such a move is, is kind of uh, far from convincing right there are plenty of historians who do not share his naturalistic presuppositions right in other words you know if uh, if we say that god uh, the, the idea that god is involved in the world in specific ways has to be taken off the table well wait a minute now we we are uh, we have some presuppositions that's, so in other words no supernatural events can happen
1: right right
0: Therefore, only natural events, we have to explain this naturally. Well, wait a minute. Why yeah. can't no
1: supernatural yeah. events happen? I don't want to seat at that table. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you've essentially uh, t- taken my response from me. I don't. I don't appreciate that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and and we, we see this, uh, this similar thing with um, with things like the Jesus seminar. And so they put their little old pebble in into a jar, and they say, "Ah, oh, well, when it says Jesus walked on water, it really means he walked by the water." And then people can go out and say, "Well, modern scholarship has said that what what, what the best translation of this is is that Jesus walked on." the water or walk by the by water, the water yes. so you know he's walking on the shore so well, he's feet well, get a little wet yeah exactly yeah, that's it you yeah know, so
0: why do that because you know yeah. supernatural events are off the table right right
1: uh um, but you know if they put their little white pebble in then here it's it's you know you can take that one to the bank yeah. because they're so skeptical that uh you don't get the whole new <laughs> testament in there
0: right and so again there are plenty of scholars who don't share this naturalistic uh, right presupposition right. Yeah. that he has right, right. yeah
1: so, however, we want to direct attention to some issues with the major planks of his argument. First, in contrast, Ehrman's Erman, claim Christianity did not elevate Jesus to a demigod, this, this small g, as a result of uh, interface with pagan and Jewish traditions and as an initial step towards being recognized later as a big, big G God. Right.
0: So, the claim here is that. Well, at first, you know, because of the pagan and Jewish traditions that were going around at the time, Christianity only thought that Jesus was kind of a demigod, right? Right? But they were so influenced by the, the the Greeks and the Jews and that sort of thing right. that this is what they came yeah. up with, right? And,
1: and this this is more the the, the Gnostic uh, understanding of who Jesus is, the demiurge and 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 is, is referring to the Old Testament God as this uh, malicious. Uh, uh, you know smaller deity that seems uh different than uh you know yahweh yeah
0: right so they were so (laughs) influenced right well the problem here is that um erdman is skipping too quickly over the uniqueness of the Christian's claims concerning Jesus. This, this seems right? to
1: be uh, an influence to his understanding of the Bauer hypothesis, which, yeah. again, um, uh, a heresy of orthodoxy uh, really does a good job of dismantling or at yeah. least going through the the claims of Bauer and then showing how inaccurate uh, yeah. he, he tends to be with his with his claims. Right. So, so you know, instead
0: of being, um, you know, totally influenced by these pagan and Jewish uh, ideas that were floating around, Uh, the worship of a crucified and risen Messiah was definitely a unique situation, right? right? It was different and uh, incredibly
1: scandalous to all of its audiences, whether they were Jewish or Greek. Having, Having a small G God in Rome... Was a normal thing. In fact, uh, Rome said you can have whatever god that you want as long as you say that Caesar is also God, or right. or that you don't uh, uh, disavow our other gods and become atheists that way. So, it's even the, even the Romans, the pagan Romans, didn't like atheists. <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, you know, why were Christians persecuted? Why? Why did uh, Eusebius say, you know, uh, 80, you know 80 years uh, that, that I have I have uh, not. Uh, that god hasn't faltered for me why why should i deny him in, in this time mm. uh, you know having having this perspective that comes rooted in a monotheistic religion of judaism is carried over and that's clearly seen especially in the writings of the new testament
0: yeah so instead of being influenced by greek pagans and uh, jewish concepts and therefore having jesus as a small g demagogue yeah Christianity was unique. Yeah, who were right? they hiding from them? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They were unique, yeah. right? It was unique. It was different uh, and unaccepted by both Greeks
1: and Jews, right? right? <clears throat> so secondly, uh, uh, Ehrman's claim, contrary to Ehrman, uh, there is strong evidence that Jesus claimed the, the prerogatives and identified himself as God. Mm, mm, Ehrman's yeah. portrait of Jesus gives short, Shrift to the uh, to the miracles, actions, and words of Jesus that point to his own divinity. Mm-hmm. He also does not allow the confessions and worship of Jesus as God by his followers immediately following the resurrection, like Matthew twenty eight seventeen, Luke twenty four fifty two, John twenty twenty eight, to contribute sufficiently to the picture. As mm-hmm. again, I, I think I mentioned last episode or the episode before. You know, uh, Thomas says, "Unless if I uh, thrust my fingers into the side of Jesus, then I—that's I, the only way I'll believe." Right. Jesus appears before him. He says, "All right, do it." And he <laughs> says, "My Lord and my God." Yeah, yeah. So this isn't like. You know how people would say, "Oh my God, the, this is crazy." No, <laughs> this is this is titles that he's attributing, and Jesus doesn't go, "Whoa, whoa hold on." You mean small G, yeah, yeah so small G <laughs> God, right? You mean demigod? Hold, hold on, hold yeah, on. Now yeah. let's not go too far, Thomas. I'm, you know, I've raised uh, myself from the dead, and yeah. I'm standing before you with holes in me. But you know, let's let's calm it down. Mm, no, that's 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 not the case here.
0: So you know, so clearly, this uh, allowing for confessions and worship of Jesus as God. Was right there very early, right, right? immediately after
1: the resurrection, yeah. right? We see we see that in, in the Corinthians passages, right. uh, having uh, uh, Paul use a very. Uh, um, creedal uh, song used that word mm-hmm. was passed down that m- most scholars do agree most scholars what scholars are yeah. am i talking about right. <laughs> <It's not> scholars. <laughs> most scholars agree is is an infant type of 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 song that the early church sang and it yeah. talks about jesus divinity
0: yeah good so um so this is you know so again this is evidence. That it wasn't an evolution that Jesus became God, but very early on he was accepted, he was worshipped, and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Right. Third, it's implausible that uh, New Testament authors would have included contradictory Christologies, right? Uh, That is, conceptions and descriptions of Christ side by side in the same book. (laughs) Right. Hmm. These suggest that uh, these ideas are related by the biblical authors to each other and not seen as competing. So here's a couple of examples. John 1 affirms that um, the Word was God, right? John 1.1. 1, 1. Then later in the same prologue, John 1.14 says, the Word became flesh and took up residence among us. Right. So he was God, and then he wasn't God, mm-hmm. right? Well, which is it? Well, it's both, right. right? They're side by side. The Word was God. The Word became flesh, mm-hmm. right? He was man.
1: Yep. So, yes, right there Well, in in verse 13, John went to go get a drink. He went to the bathroom. He washed his hands. (laughs) He he finished the TV show he was watching. And then he came back and was like, well, where was I again? All right. right, Here here we go. He's a man. (laughs) He he came down, I guess. I don't know. Let's let's keep going. I've got a lot to write here. We've got to get to the end of the book. (laughs) Uh, Colossians uh, 119 gives us what Ehrman thinks is uh, completely different uh, from an earlier exaltation Christologies. Uh, God was uh, pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Yet later in Colossians 2.12, so again, Colossians 1.19, and yet in 2.12, yeah. Paul refers to the exaltation of Christ when God raised him from the dead. So,
0: so yeah, again, so he is God, right? Mm-hmm. All the fullness of deity dwells in him. But he isn't God because God raised him from the dead. Right. Well, he's both. Right, and they're both together in the same passage, mm-hmm. right? And these authors don't see this as a contradiction,
1: right? right. Huh? And again, it's it's, it's what uh, we've we've said on the show before is that it seems like the the inclusion of the doctrine of the Trinity happens in the pages between the Old Testament and the New Testament. There's a reason you don't see Paul say, "Okay, hold on, let me pause here and talk about how uh, God uh, was pleased to have all His do- fullness uh, dwell in Christ." Therefore identifying Jesus as God and then saying, well, and then you might be confused when I say later that uh, God raised him from the dead. Well, what am I talking about here? Yeah. Let me go into a full on, you know, another book on this. Yeah. No, it, it seems like there's an understanding. There's, there's no outcry of like, Oh, well, we're all monotheists. You don't right. see that from Hebrews. You see a continuation of, of, of these people who who need to be exalted, not on the nature of who Christ is, but on the nature of what he accomplished. Mm, mm, mm-hmm uh, Erman's evolutionary theory might have some initial plausibility if these differences were seen only in different books, but the fact that these differences are in the same book makes his theory problematic to say the least. Right. Not saying it's wrong. We would say it's wrong, right. but not saying that you can wholly dismiss it, but it seems really interesting here in the scope of a, a, a single chapter and here two chapters right. that, that uh, t- two major writers of the new Testament, Paul and John would, would, Conflate these ideas saying, oh, well, hold on. What I mean is demigod. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, a little lower than the angels.
0: Yeah, yeah good. So, fourth, uh, Erdman either misinterprets or fails to engage with several very important passages. Erdman argues that neither in Matthew nor in Luke is Jesus seen as a pre existence, right, prior to his birth, but instead becomes divine in some lesser sense of the word. According to mm-hmm. Erdman, the Gospel of Mark also does not view Jesus as pre existent. Pre-existent and puts his adoption, right, uh, even later than the other synoptics at his baptism, right? So his adoption by God, this is my son, where yeah. he's adopted at by God, at the history, baptism, yeah. right? Yeah. So he interprets Mark in this way because there is no account of the virgin birth, and he sees the voice of God as at Jesus' baptism as marking a declaration, right, that during this event, Jesus is becoming the son of God. Mm-hmm. This is my beloved son, and yeah. I'm well pleased, right? right?
1: However, as uh, Simon uh, Gathercole points out, God says something similar in Mark 9, 7. Mm. Hmm, okay. But clearly Jesus is not being adopted again. He says, uh, it's hard to see how the voice at the baptism could refer to God's adoption of Jesus and the similar sounding voice at the transfiguration of mean something different
0: yeah so is he adopted at the at the uh at the baptism and then readopted at the transfiguration right. when god says this is my beloved son here. <laughs> yeah right. listen to him yeah. oh, oh,
1: oh, okay hold on yeah yeah uh in a key scene in the, the synoptics and uh, matthew 26 and then mark 14 jesus claims he will sit with god in heaven appealing to psalm 110 as well as daniel 7 in matthew and mark the Jewish leaders accused Jesus of blasphemy because this was a claim to be equal to God. And they did not believe he could make this claim. This is equivalent to claiming divinity and the leaders got the point. So, so very early on, there was, there was this claim to divinity. <laughs> so right? if, we're, if we're to listen to critical scholars, the the Jewish leaders were the critical scholars. Yeah. <laughs> they tore their cloaks. They 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 rent them in two, which is what they were. uh that was that high a blasphemy that even outside the temple, hearing this from a, a fellow Jew, caused them to to do something that that showed their humility by by ripping their their yeah. vestments.
0: Yeah, and their their uh, how egregious this was to them. Right. I mean, yeah.
1: Yeah. How insulting. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. So uh, in summary,
0: our position, the, our book tells us is that Jesus was not a mere man who became God only later. Uh, In Jesus, God took on humanity in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. Also, also the types of Christology Erdman claims as contradictory are found side by side, even intertwined in individual New Testament books, such as John's uh, Gospel Mm -hmm. or Colossians that we looked at. Mm -hmm. So apparently these authors held both views simultaneously without considering them contradictory, right? So this calls Ertman's uh, alleged trajectory of this kind of evolution from exaltation to incarnation Christologies, it calls this, it calls this into question.
1: Mm-hmm. All right. uh, so the, the um, kind of heading for this, uh, this portion is called From Credulity to Skepticism. Right. So this is the very last section of the book, right. here, of, of the, the chapter. chapter. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, uh, er- Erman's journey serves as a reminder that when approaching history, we must avoid two extremes, credulity skepticism Mm. right barterman claims to have so
0: believing everything and (laughs) believing nothing right right right.
1: when it comes to the approach now that's saying that you can't believe everything uh, in the end but we need to be measured and controlled when approaching things again like the bereans did uh, against what what uh, other people did when when um, paul is out there preaching he goes before the 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 um, the Jewish leadership, the Jewish church, and they test him and talk to him and figure out if he's teaching what's what's accurate. The fact that they don't uh, disavow him, uh, that they continue to eat with him, that they send him on missionary journeys shows that they agreed and supported his message. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, Bart Ehrman claims to have uh, studied, uh, started his study of the Bible as a fundamentalist, All right. but through a painful process, uh, left fundamentalism uh, in the wake of his exposure to critical scholarship. Yeah. Certainly, in many ways, Ehrman is the antithesis of a fundamentalist. Right. Nevertheless, his rigid requirements for what the New Testament must adhere to, his own that he gives, to, in order to be considered true, ironically, bears striking resemblance to his Fundamentalist beginnings. Yeah. Interesting interesting
0: so points. So he he leaves fundamentalism, but his basic beliefs are fundamental, right? In terms of his basic approach, rather, right. is fundamental.
1: Right. Yeah. Just believe, don't question. This is the <laughs> word of God. There's no need to look further into these things. He's just doing it for the skeptical point of view. Right. right. So
0: just don't believe this isn't the word of God.
1: <laughs> right. So again, uh, the the the, the is, we're not saying that a hundred percent. This is the, 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 view that he's coming at, but in, in the scope of his books, what he's writing to uh, the popular audience, he doesn't seem to be addressing alternative viewpoints or the best uh, um, uh, explanations to what he's, he's going about. He seems to be putting this out and it's only when he gets into um, good debates with people uh, that I think a lot of that's fleshed out. And so um, I don't know. I, when Barterman debates, it doesn't fill me with, with too much. One way or the other, because I don't, I just don't feel like he wants to be at many of them. <laughs> that, that's what I'm getting, but okay. uh, but there are a lot out there, and so you should check them out because yeah. uh, you know that that's that's a, a view of scholarship where um, both sides get tested, and so um, checking them out. I know James White has uh, debated him, uh, uh, especially on uh, Bart Ehrman's claim that um, that uh, changes in the gospel or in, in the New Testament book, especially Hebrews, uh, changes the entire scope of Hebrews, and so Tim uh, McGrew has. Been Debated him, yeah. Debated. Yeah. 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 Very, very uh, interesting stuff on uh unbelievable podcast. Right. So, uh, well, heck, I'll link those in the description below. Uh, but there are other ones out there. Feel free. And, you know, sometimes Bert Ehrman wins, whatever that means in the scope of debate. <laughs> um, you know, uh, that, that's another discussion that Tim McGrew would, would probably have as well. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so uh, next time, uh, Chapter 3, or uh, depending on uh, where this comes out uh, for the, the kind of holiday break that, uh, that most people on, I might throw in a, 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 a different change of, of form, and uh, we might go back to this after that one. So, But we are going to continue on. Uh, thanks for joining us this year. Uh, you know, we started uh, uh, this, this uh, show uh, two years ago. And again, like I always say, we would be doing it anyways. Uh, now we're just uh, held to consistency. So <laughs> so uh, thanks for those of you who uh, have subscribed, who have listened, um, that, uh, that have written emails and comments and talked about how uh, we don't do a good job. Uh, you know what? We're going to continue on and, uh, and try and do better, too, as well, mm. uh, whatever that might mean.
0: I, but I am excited about this next chapter, though. Are the biblical manuscripts cool? Yeah.
1: Again, wow. it keeps drilling down into yeah. the areas where Bart Ehrman seems to be most known for. Yeah. And so yeah. the, this so, is another one of his books. Yeah. Great. So, again, thank you. Share, like, subscribe, continue to listen. Uh, even if you don't want to listen to this episode, download it. So, that, you know, uh, you you've, you fake our, our stat numbers. <laughs> uh, download it 16 times. Uh, leave uh, reviews if you want to. If not, continue to enjoy. Yeah. Thank you. Sir. See you next time.